Welcome back to Who Turned Out the Lights. Today, I would like to talk about school choice, and I think today's guest is the perfect person to discuss school choice with, considering that he has a background in private education, state lawmaking, and in the business world. Mr. Daniel Stout has worked for many years as a banker, and he has served in the nonprofit arena for several years as the head of board of a private Christian school. He also previously served as a sent as a state representative and the Georgia legislator. Mr. Stout, thank you for joining me today. Good morning, Esther. It's awesome to be here with you again. So, uh, Georgia Bill 999 is currently making its way through the legislature. If passed, it could give $6,000 a year to nearly anyone as long as their child attended public school for six weeks. This is the highest amount ever allowed for school vouchers in Georgia. Unlike Previous vouchers in Georgia, parents can use this voucher for homeschool costs as well as private school. So what's your thought on this, Bill? So this is a crazy situation, mm-hmm. and I love it. I love 999, um, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you about it because there are so many different uh, perspectives on this bill and on what's going on not only politically and legislatively, but culturally right now. And the, the, the strange bedfellows that this issue of school choice is making. So um, I guess I'll start. I, I, instead, I'll start with saying what I think is going on. Mm-hmm. And what is happening here is there is a coalition of worldview-driven conservative Republicans and uh, urban, mostly black, Democrats who both care deeply about school choice. And the conservative Republicans, it's kind of a worldview. We don't want our children being indoctrinated type situation. Mm-hmm. And for the mo- mostly urban uh, black community, this is a situation of generational neglect mm-hmm. that they are sick and tired of. And it, it's, it's fair. Uh, you know, they, they feel like for generations and generations, they've been left behind and they're, th- they're done and they're, they're ready for a change. But the political parties... Um, the Republicans have always been a little bit more favorable towards school choice and vouchers and things like that, but the dim- but but not a hundred percent. There's a split within the Republican Party on this issue, mm-hmm. but there's a big split on the Democrat side. So you have your ivory tower, uh, what I would say is uh, the progressive hippie type liberals, Democrats, mm-hmm. who really don't like this. But you have your meat and potatoes, um, real life issues, families in, in urban America who care a lot about it, especially the black community. And it's an issue for the party, for the Democrat party, because that is a major part of their base. But the only people paying attention to this, uh, strong desire that these families have has been the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's creating a, a huge switch right now um, as far as the alignment of the, the majority of the black community with which party they affiliate with. 
but it's creating a lot of strange dynamics in how they view their their party. And this is an example of um, we hear about the partisanship and how everybody just goes straight to their corner and fights that out against the other party and everyone's allegiance is only to party. But this, this bill and this topic is one that crosses party lines, not just for show, but in a very meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really interesting to watch. So, um, do you want me to keep going on my thoughts on it or do you have some well, I want to start by playing devil's advocate really quickly. Sure. And see your response to that. So You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> so, the cri- critics of the bill say that um, vouchers deprive public schools of the money they need to educate our kids. How would you respond to that? I, I understand that argument. I think one of the strange ways about how this bill will function if it's passed into law is that it doesn't change the uh, funding model mm-hmm. it is it is all state money that go, that follows the student at their parents direction and so uh, it's actually going to provide more dollars per student in the public school system than they currently have. And so that's a really hard argument to make to say you're taking dollars per student out of the public school system. You are taking some uh, marginal dollars out of the public Mm -hmm. school system, but you're going to have more dollars per student in the public school system. And, you know, how we fund education in the state of Georgia is a mix so there's federal money that's not a ton but there is federal money there's state money but the bulk of the money comes from the local county and city Mm -hmm. and and this voucher is not taking money from the county and then giving it back to the parent it's coming straight from the state Mm -hmm. and so i think it's hard to make the argument that you're taking money out of the county or city's pocket that we need to educate the children that don't take advantage of the voucher because they're not taking that money away. It's coming straight from the state. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, another thing they would say is that this violates the wall of separation between church and state when the tax money goes to religious schools, such as Mm -hmm. I believe the one you uh, are head of the board for is a Christian school. That's correct. Uh, So what do you think about this argument? Well, it would be... I mean, there's how I feel about the argument and what I think about the argument itself, and then there's the legal justification for the argument. So how I feel about it or what I think about the argument, I would say that all schools have a worldview that they tend to promote, and and uh, even if they're not intentionally pushing a worldview, um, there's a culture and a recognition of authority and where authority comes from and truth and where truth comes from and all these things that just naturally flow in the educational environment. And so you can't get away from an environment in which right and wrong Mm -hmm. is taught. It's part of education. And in America for a long time, 
the secular worldview or the idea that as long as we're not preaching any particular religion, we're not we're not promoting uh, religion at all, has been the how people approach this. But the reality is that secularism is a worldview, and you've seen this a lot over the past few years, where not only is it a way of thinking, but it involves major moral judgment. Mm-hmm. It involves uh, um, uh, shunning. It involves, and, and you know, the word that they use now is canceling. But that that is an exercise in moral judgment against somebody who has broken the uh, the moral rules that we've all agreed upon in in this system of thought. And it's a relig- it's a it is a religious exercise. And I think that secularism is way more of a religion than most people think. That's my personal thought. Mm. But from a legal perspective, from a legal perspective, this this law becomes viable because of a Supreme Court decision that was uh, out of Montana, I think, two years ago, mm-hmm. in which the uh, the state of Montana was trying to say these public funds can only go to, to non-sectarian or non-religious schools. Do you know about that Supreme Court decision? No. Okay. And what happened is um, there was a, a law on the books called a separation of church and state law or something like that in, in Montana. And the state government was using that as its basis to not provide funding for religious schools. And the Supreme Court ended up taking this case and they said, no, you can't provide funding for a, a non-religious organization, whether it be school or healthcare or something like that, and refuse to provide the same funding for another organization just because it is religiously based. Mm-hmm. And that was a major decision that the Supreme Court made. And there's a lot of history about, you know, why, um, why Montana had that rule in the first place and, and, and the history of, um, it actually goes back to when Protestants were the dominating worldview in the country and, and Catholic schools were starting up and the Protestants made these rules to try to keep the Catholic schools from getting public funding. Mm-hmm. But then the whole public education system turned secular, not Protestant. And so all these Protestants had the stone they had uh, thrown roll back on them and became ineligible for the funding that they had kept the Catholics away from. Mm-hmm. And it's really a hilarious way that um, everything comes full circle. But because of that Supreme Court ruling a couple of years ago, uh, it's totally a viable legal structure for um, uh, dispensing vouchers for parents to make that decision. Mm-hmm. That was a long answer. No, I think I get it, yeah. And isn't this voucher giving money to the parents of the kids? And not directly to the schools. It uh, well, it flows. It flow. It act follows the child, but the child mm-hmm. can't make a legal decision yet, and so the parents will make the legal decision. But the money follows the child. But that is correct. It goes, it goes through the parents and not directly to the school, mm-hmm. and that's the free market. And some people are afraid of the free market, especially mm-hmm. monopolies are afraid of the free market. Um, you know, I have concerns about. 
about the attachment of this money coming from the state to the school and the, the um, dependence that independent institutions like a private school could end up having on state government funds if, if a majority of their students are funded through that and, and that law were changed, that could create very serious business challenges for a, an organization or a school. So, it, you know, it, it, has its, it has its challenges. It's not all, it's not all roses. Mm-hmm. Some commenters argue that the pandemic that we're in may have contributed to the support for school choice in two major ways. The first being that the prolonged shutdowns encouraged parents to move their kids to private schools that reopened sooner. Did your school, did they reopen sooner than some public schools in we the did. area? We did, yeah. Our, our school opened uh, in 2020. We shut down for the remainder of the year that ended in May of 2020. And we reopened in August of 2020 mm-hmm. with safeguards in place and distancing and uh, the option for wearing masks and things like that. But the school actually made it through the entire pandemic with very little issue. Mm. And um, I think that was very fortunate and a huge blessing that we didn't have any any issue because some people did have issues with yeah. COVID in the schools and things like that. But our, our school really didn't. Did you notice like a change in how many people wanted to attend the school oh yeah there was a huge increase in demand and not just at the school that i'm involved with but there was uh, talking to other school board chairmen there there was a across the board spike in demand because parents wanted their children to have a normal educational experience and that was no longer available Mm -hmm. through their through their public school system and that's the reality of the situation. So I know some parents, with the second reason being that some parents heard startling messages being communicated to their kids over these online sessions. They got to look into what their kids were actually learning at school and they decided, hey, I don't, this isn't what I want my kid learning. So do you think private school is a better way for parents to be more involved in knowing what their kids are actually learning? So the startling messages, I think, was a part of it. I think that the overall canceling normalcy was a bigger part of it. Mm-hmm. The startling messages made a lot of news, and that's what the news does. They find something that's going to get 100,000 likes, mm-hmm. and and that's always the most uh, incendiary <laughs> possible story yeah. that people are going to get outraged about. And that did have an effect. I, I think that that did have somewhat of a change um, in some of the psychology of parents and you saw that in some of these states like Virginia had a governor lose re-election or he, I don't know if he was a sitting governor or if he was a former governor who was trying to get elected again but he lost because of that issue and it was because in a debate he told the parents of his state and this is a brilliant political move he told the parents of his state, you need to leave the educational choices for your children up to the experts. <laughs> and the parents said, you will not be our next governor. Mm. And that's, that's, so there are ramifications and, and 
And I think that what you're saying is a real thing, Mm -hmm. but in, in my experience, the demand increase that we saw was more about, I want my kid to have a normal life. Yeah. Can we get, can we get some help? Can, can, can he go to school at your school and play baseball and basketball and, you know, go out on adventure trips and just have a normal life because I don't want my kid's childhood to be rocked mm-hmm. by something that um, is outside of our control. So, I know as a student, a current student right now, when my school shut down for part of the pandemic, it was a complete, like, whirlwind of emotion Mm -hmm. everyone was confused i know a lot of kids were probably like cheating on their tests you know getting easy grades but i know for the whole thing it was just um, massive confusion and no one really enjoyed it because Mm -hmm. it was so difficult to communicate and you kind of lost the whole point of being at school being able to ask your teachers Mm -hmm. questions and communicate with your fellow students so so many people like hated being an online school. So why did the public school continue it even if mask mandates were set in place and so on? I can't speak for why large school systems make the decisions that they make. Uh, oftentimes, there's a dynamic where the larger your organization is, the more fear-driven you are. Mm-hmm. That's not always the case. But a lot of the time, the larger an organization is, the more risk-averse its leadership is. Mm-hmm. And you re- really saw that play itself out during the pandemic because what would happen is um, the decision to close or cancel school would often be made by the largest school system, mm-hmm. and then they'd start falling like dominoes. Then the second largest school system and the third largest school system and the fourth largest school system. And then you get further down the line to smaller, more rural school systems who wouldn't cancel. Mm -hmm. But no school system wants to be the one that's just a little bit smaller than this other school system that did cancel. And then a a kid gets COVID and gives it to his granddad who dies and it becomes a big news story. And, and the leadership, the board, and the superintendent of that school system, you know, get blamed mm-hmm. for, for that. And so I think it's risk aversion in large organizations is a big reason why that happened. If that's the case, why did your school decide to reopen? Um, first of all, we are not a very large organization. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly small it's a fairly small school family, and so the uh, the concentration of people is not as dense as it is in a larger school. Um, the The risk, I think, of how many points of contact the school body has outside on any given day. And, and and the potential for a wildfire spread was a little bit lower. But there's also just a cultural difference where, um, where the leadership of the school said, we're not going to live life without risk. We recognize this risk is real and there's danger involved, you know, but we're going to continue with our mission 
and just try to be as safe as we can doing it. And that, that was kind of a, I guess, a cultural leadership approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was not fun. Yeah. There was some anxiety involved in that decision, especially when other people were making a different decision. Mm-hmm. You hate to be hanging out there, and if something bad happens, that would be a lot of weight to carry. Mm-hmm. So. But do you think the decision has been well, good in the long run? It's, it has worked out very well for us in the long run, but if, if there had been some incident in, in, in which there was an issue, then I probably would answer differently. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, uh, we were blessed to not have any of those issues. And, and so because of that, looking back, it worked out wonderfully. I would feel differently if mm-hmm. someone had been badly affected by the virus. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are there any other points you'd like to make about this bill? Well, so I want to build 999, the voucher bill. I just want to point out some of the personalities um, behind the bill. And this is really interesting. So the primary sponsors of the bill are Wes Cantrell, Mike Glanton, Angela Moore, Heath Clark, uh, Patty Bentley. This is a broad... (laughs) This is not uh, the, the people who all agree on all policies in state government. Uh, Wes Cantrell is a conservative Republican from Woodstock. Mike Glanton is a, um, an African-American Democrat from Jonesboro. Angela Moore is an African-American Democrat lady from Jonesboro. Uh, no, she's not from Jonesboro. She's from DeKalb. Heath Clark is from Warner Robins. He's Republican. And Patty Bentley's from Macon. She's a Democrat. So you've got these three um, solidly Democrat with with their districts are probably like 80% Democrat districts. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these three like uh, Red Meat Georgia conservatives, all as primary co-sponsors of this bill. And that's so cool and interesting to me. And it has legs. The bill really has legs. I don't know if it'll pass. And and, and one of my concerns is the, uh, the three positions, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house, and the governor. Will it make it through those marks? And I think the speaker of the house must be on board or it wouldn't have made it through committee. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know if it'll make it through those other bars. I think it, I think it might. And I think it's a beautiful picture. And this doesn't make news stories because people don't care about good things. They want to read about the house fire. Oh, yeah. But this bill is a beautiful picture of cooperation among people who have really different politics and really different uh, ideas in a lot of areas about about state government and even about education, but they came together and said, this is, this is the time to give parents a choice and where their kids are going to be educated. And we all agree on that. So we're going to work together on that and push this forward and make it happen. And I think it's really great. What will be interesting going forward is the political dynamic for um, for the Democratic Party especially. So you've got a bunch of small in-town districts. Mm-hmm. 
in which the the end of its heavily democratic districts in which the voters and the families that live in those districts are going to be pro house bill 999 they're going to want the vouchers but the representatives are going to hear those voices but the amount of pressure that will come from the party leadership itself and from the interests that uh, fund and and support the party are gonna that's gonna be some overwhelming pressure Mm -hmm. and so right now as this bill is working its way through i guarantee you that there are very difficult conversations being had with those state reps and those uh democratic districts that are trying to figure out if they're going to stick with their people Mm -hmm. or if they're going to stick with their party and some of them will stick with their party and that doesn't mean that district will flip red because it won't flip red but it will mean that you're i think you're going to see some turnover in the you know it'll still be a democrat rep but you'll see some turnover in representatives in some of these areas where the rep went with the party instead of the people mm-hmm. they'll get primaried by just some some other person who says they didn't listen to us i'll run and i'll listen to the people and the, the issue is big enough of an issue that it's going to make that it's going to have that kind of effect. And I don't know exactly where that will go. But um, what is today? February the 19th. February 19th. You can put it down. I'll bet you $20. <laughs> there will be reps who vote with the party against the wishes of their people on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. They'll get primaried and they'll be done. Hmm. Yeah. Which I hate for them. I'm not ha- like I'm not. uh have joy at the difficulty of their decision yeah. or anything like that, but it, that it's creating that kind of damp dynamic, especially in that party. And it happens, it's happening a little on the Republican side too. Mm-hmm. Like there, there are what I would call old school Republicans who don't want to upset the apple cart in the educational system. They just want to reform the existing system over time Mm. and they are very hesitant to student scholarship organization type bills they're very uh, resistant to voucher type bills because the concern is that um, if you do this it could be a free-for-all I think the budget office for the state of Georgia ran some projections for how much it might cost the state and they said in the first year you might have half a percent of students take advantage. In the second year, you might have another half a percent. And they've played it out five years, imagining that at the end of five years, 2.5% of students are using vouchers. Mm. It ain't going to work that way. If they pass this bill, it's not going to be 2.5% of students in the state of Georgia using vouchers. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot more than that. And it's going to be a lot of students using vouchers in the inner city getting a better education never wanting to go back and it's going to shake the foundations of the educational system and of politics in the state of georgia it's a big deal so this is a pretty monumentous bill it is huge mm-hmm. it, it, and and it, it's shaken a lot of things up but i think in a good way yeah. Um, I wouldn't, again, I would not want to be in the position to make this decision right now. It, it's, well, it, it, there are some difficult decisions, difficult parts of the decision that have to be considered. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess one of them is that if, I think the numbers I saw were that if 2.5% of the students in the state of Georgia 
use utilize the voucher program, it would cost the state two hundred fifty million. Hmm. I think what's going to end up happening if it passes, and not immediately, but over the next four to eight years, is it's going to be more like ten percent, and costing the state closer to a billion. And what's going to happen then is the state's going to say, "This is a lot of money," and we're still sending money for these counties who are now overfunded for a lower number of students. And so there's going to be a whole nother conversation about how to rectify that imbalance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, if it passes, I think that's what's in the future. It's, it's not going to be half a percent of students using this. Mm-hmm. But in general, you think the best move would be to pass this bill. I, I think that this bill, Oh, all in all is, is a good bill. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a free market guy. Mm-hmm. I am a, a freedom and liberty guy. And so there's something a little bit weird about the state saying, everybody give us your money. Now let us give you back your money. <laughs> Why not just let us have our money in the first place? Why do you have to take it from us and yeah. then give it back to us? And there's a little bit of that. But there's also, you know, uh, Georgia in its constitution provides that every student, every, every child in the state of Georgia will be provided an education free of cost. That is in the Constitution of Georgia. And I didn't write that Constitution. That Constitution was adopted in, I think, in 82. Mm-hmm. But it's in, the, it's in our Constitution, and we are a people of law, and that is the highest law in, in our state that we live under. And so it is appropriate for legislators who are um, sworn to to follow that constitution to adopt and um, provide for that provision. It's Article 8 of the Georgia Constitution to, to make sure that children are getting an education, that it's provided. Mm-hmm. I think this is a step to take that uh, government commitment and introduce free market dynamics to the commitment that's enshrined in the constitution of the state of Georgia. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think this is a good place to stop. Um, I really appreciate it. I could go on for hours with you, Esther. This has been really fun. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.